Hey family, if you are an educator, a teacher, a principal, an education consultant, I have something so special that you cannot find anywhere else that is coming to your phone, your iPad, your desktop. I am bringing together my squad. I'm bringing together my team. I'm bringing together some folks who you can identify with because they were in the classroom in schools and education organizations just like you and now they are running six and seven figure education consulting businesses. I am Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas and welcome to the Seven Figure Educator Podcast. I am so excited to have you here with us. I am excited for this conversation because I know that the folks who are going to be listening in and joining this conversation are going to leave this conversation thinking bigger. Absolutely, I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. And um, hopefully everyone will leave with the knowledge and the feeling of knowing that wealth is achievable. So first off, I had to bring notes because I was like, I don't want to forget a single question that I want to ask because I know the people want to know and they may not know yet that they want to know. So I was like, let me write down my questions. So let's first start with just sharing your background. So if you could share with folks your professional background so that way they have some context to your receipts and who you are and what's positioned you to be so knowledgeable and fluent around the secrets of the 1%. So believe it or not, I have known since I was about 14 years old that I would do something with money. At 16, I was speaking on colleges and university stages, talking about credit reports and scores. <laughs> like the craziest thing, right? Um, 18, I promptly got my insurance licenses and fresh out of undergrad, I started on my journey of obtaining my security licenses. And so before I left corporate America, I had 12 licenses. Those 12 licenses gave me the ability to do um, anything from actually uh, positioning products and services to clients to supervising um, those same advisors and wealth managers and also supervising investments into stadiums and toll bridges and um, IPOs. However, along that journey, that journey was very lonely. I was often the only person uh, that looked like me in the room and I was often mistaken as someone's assistant or secretary and I got so disgruntled that my clients never looked like me or the portfolios that I was supervising, those owners never looked like me, that I started on the journey of figuring out why that was, and that has ultimately led me here. So when we say finance, that means a lot of things. <laughs> and so given the company that you run, if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown of the work you all do, who you all work with, before we kind of dig into uh, some of the strategy 1% secrets. Traditionally, our target audiences are individuals who have net worths that exceed $1 million, or they have revenue in their business that exceeds $1 million. Now, we definitely have clients who don't meet that, um, but they have a million-dollar mindset. And when I say they have a million-dollar mindset, that means they're coming to us and they're like, hey, I'm not there yet, but I'm on my way. I need to know what I need to be doing now to get there and just blow my goals out the water. Um, and we can absolutely work with those um, business owners, but 99% of our clients um, have businesses or they are um, serial um, real estate investors. So um, I think most of the time when people think about financial services or financial support, they either think like accounting, bookkeeping, maybe like a financial advisor, but one of the things that you all work with your clients on is wealth management. So can you just define and explain what wealth management means? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, honestly, Dr. Erica, many people have different definitions of what wealth management is. What we like to do is um, be the quarterback of individuals' money teams. And what that means is that they may have 
wealth professionals that they already work with. They may already have attorneys. They may already have bookkeepers. They may already have a CPA, a tax advisor. But we like to bring all of those parties together to build, implement, and maintain a cohesive strategy that helps our clients reach their ultimate goal. So majority of our clients, when we build out a strategy for them, they they end up seeing numbers that they never even thought were possible. And they're like, wow, like, I didn't really realize my goal was 15 million, 20 million dollars. So how do we get there once we realize that that is the goal? Um, And that is what we help our um, clients accomplish. And we are a very collaborative organization. My team members and I, we welcome working with other professionals um, because we realize we also don't, don't know it all, right? However, we want the people that we're serving to feel comfortable in their strategy and knowing that they have picked the right people to help lead their money team. So we want everyone that they already trust to come along for the ride and to you know help make this a success for for our for our clients and um, that's really what that's about the more wealth we can help our clients grow and keep the more jobs they can create the more impact that we can have in our communities the more lives that we can change and a greater legacy that we can leave behind instead of fighting over grandma's house upon our parents passing. Hey there, I know you're enjoying this conversation, but I just wanted to pop in real quick to make sure that you knew about Seven Figure Educator Live. It is the event for black education consultants. And I host it as an opportunity for you to get in the room and get the transformation that you need for your education consulting business to cross the seven figure mark. So I want you to head to the show notes and click the link sevenfigureeducator.com to be able to learn all about the event and get your seat so that way you can join us. I'll see you there. Okay, so there's a couple things in there. So I'm gonna gonna slide back around the money team because we're gonna define that here in a second, but I wanna dovetail on this last note because you said instead of fighting over grandma's house because i think a lot of people think define wealth as i can pass down a house how does the one percent think about wealth they're looking at how to pass that wealth down for the next two to three hundred years so that's more than grandma's house that's more than grandma's house (laughs) (laughs) we got it Okay, so, and that's crazy because, I mean, that's generational wealth. And like, we we throw that around all the time, but I don't think we in our heads have put a number of years to it to say, what am I doing now to be able to pass something down that will still be in ownership of my family in 200 years? So like, can you give us an example of that? Like, because... For people who are just like, like, what is, like, is it a house? Like, is it like something else? Like, what would be an example of like how the 1% thinks about a 200 year asset? So a great example, or at least what I perceive to be a great example is the fact that everyone is sitting in this room right now. You are all sitting in this room because you want to start businesses, right? Or you want to have more control and freedom of your time and your and your money so you can create more freedom, right? Uh, well, guess what? When you decide that you want to take that to the next level and you want to um, build out a team where you're working more on the business instead of you working so much in the business and you're hiring and training and scaling that business so other people can do what you do times 100 or times 1,000. So now you have, you know, hundreds of replicas of yourself out there doing the work, um, but you're, you're just managing your overall organization right well guess what now you're building an asset that can eventually be leveraged and that asset can be eventually potentially sold or you could be acquired or you can merge with another company Um, and I'm saying this because there's a different point that I want to bring up a little bit later and I don't want to kind of jump ahead but um, the goal here is that we have to get to the point where we are accumulating assets. And accumulating assets also means building businesses. So traditionally in our communities, we think accumulation of assets 
all we have to do is, you know, work for a school system and, you know, get our pension or, you know, work for someone 20, 30 years and invest in our 401ks and, you know, that's it. But those are not the type of accumulation of assets that I'm speaking of. I'm speaking of accumulation of assets that, you know, can literally accelerate your wealth. Um, and that could be a combination of things that can be a combination of, you know, building a real estate portfolio that helps with taxes. That could be a combination of, you know, building a business or joining forces with other people to build larger businesses. Um, and then once you reach uh, what I like to call that coveted um, net worth goal of $1 million, then there's actually a host of other opportunities that become available to you um, that I can't even talk about to an unqualified room. And most of us don't even know that that's the thing. What I just heard you say was acquisitions and mergers without saying acquisitions and mergers. So I think there's a couple different layers to the conversation because I, oftentimes when we think when you haven't been exposed or you you know haven't seen different models of entrepreneurship you think of your own business building a business you might hire an employee or two and what I heard you say was actually different models of business of you could be acquiring businesses you could be buying businesses so for example, if you spend a lot of money on tax and bookkeeping, even if you're an education consulting business, you might decide to buy a accounting business and they actually do your accounting, but now it's an asset because you've absorbed the expense to now it's under your umbrella, but they also have other clients that they are, are providing accounting and bookkeeping services to, but you own the company. Absolutely. And they happen to be doing your bookkeeping as well. I think people think that, and this is a part of, of how I've heard people kind of talk about this strategy, which has also been mind blowing for me, of rather than starting something from scratch or paying for a service, you could buy the service. So you could buy a bookkeeping company. You could buy an event planning space. Given the amount of money I spent on hotels, I could invest in a hotel and now absorb potentially some of that cost and also make money because I now have some type of ownership. So if you could talk a little bit about where, there's like so many different directions I wanna go because it's such a good conversation. I wanna take half a step back and then come back into some of the strategy stuff to really talk about 1% mindset. So first, before we talk about how the 1% thinks and moves, let's just define 1%. Like technically from a numeric standpoint, who is the 1%? Like what qualifies people to be in the 1%? There are many different buckets of the 1%, right? Um, traditionally, when I'm speaking of the 1%, I'm speaking of the 1% of income earners. And so the 1% of income earners are earners whose income that they bring home, like that is taxable on their tax return, exceeds $504,000 annually. So believe it or not, Say the number again, because I posted $504,000 annually. $504,000 annually. So believe it or not, many of you in this room, that's an achievable goal. That is a, that's an achievable goal. And then how many people do you know that already earned that? They already earned that. And they don't know what we're talking about. And therefore, they're not doing what they need to do to properly protect it, to keep it, to pass it on. And that's how you lose it. And that's by design. Dr. EJT spent this entire weekend talking about oppression. and how the system is designed to keep us from winning. That's my design. So as you can see, I got so disgruntled when those clients and those individuals never looked like me because I knew we were missing the mark. And when you hear those you know, statistics about 
how the dollar only stays in our community for 13 hours and it stays in other communities for seven and eight days. That, that's true. And this is how. Most of the time when people hear 1%, they think Jeff Bezos, they think Oprah. And now somebody like, wait, me? Wait, my mama? My neighbor? That's right. Everyone in this room has the potential to be in the 1%. Every single person. Because you would not be in this room, not this room, if that was not already in your DNA. Not this room. You wouldn't still be here on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning, in this room, if you didn't have what it takes to reach that destination. What would you say would be one or two of the most critical money mindsets that the 1% who are effectively managing and building wealth, how they think about money or their relationship with money in comparison to other folk? Excellent question. So the first thing that I would say is that they learn how to control their emotions. They learn how to control their emotions. Money is a very emotional thing. You know, our brain is wired to keep us safe. Our brain wants to be safe at all times. And therefore, sometimes we have to make decisions that are contrary to what our brain wants us to do. Because we have feelings. And we, we don't want people to feel a certain type of way. But individuals who are wealthy, you know, they have to find ways to put those feelings to the side and make decisions based on fact and logic. And it doesn't mean that you're just going to disregard, you know, um, someone's feelings. You just have to figure out how to work around those things. And figuring out how to work around those things also means figuring out how to overcome your, your own fear and your own biases, even those hidden biases that you didn't even realize that you have but are going to start slowly coming out as you start to build wealth. You're going to start realizing like, wow, I didn't realize I felt that way about this situation now that I am here. And how do you recognize those things and make sure that you continue to work on yourself so you can continue to overcome those obstacles, you can continue to overcome those challenges. Individuals who are building wealth, they eventually have to build a team around themselves. Like it's not just about, you know, who's on my money team, but it's also, you know, who's, who's my therapist, who's my counselor, who's my, you know, person that I talk to, um, to help me stay on the straight and narrow, to help me figure things out. Um, you know, many of us cannot even handle not only the wealth conversation, but just having wealth. We can't handle the demands that come with that. Like everybody in my family has their hands out. Every, all these long lost cousins are coming out the woodwork now and you know, they want to be around and you know, all of these things. And guess what? Many times those are distractions. So when it comes to the number one thing being mindset, there's a number of things that you have to overcome, a number of challenges that particularly first-generation millionaires experience. Um, And family is a big one, very big. You know, obviously, you know, many of us, I included, you know, we want to support our, you know, our mom and dad. We want to buy them a house and things along those lines. Um, But we can become overly burdensome too soon. And just because we have it, you know, within the first year or two, it doesn't mean you need to go ahead and just start spending the money. You need to allow the money to accumulate. So it can produce something that you can live on and pass on for the rest of your days and your kids' days and the grandkids' days too. We can't spend it the moment that we get it. So mindset is a a really, really big one. The second thing is um, wealthy understand that their largest expense is actually taxes. And because that is their largest expense and and many, I mean, it it really eclipses the mortgage. In fact, many of you in this room, your largest expense is probably taxes too. 
It eclipses your, your mortgage and your car payment and insurance too. So the wealthy realize that, hey, in order for us to make more money and grow the money, we have to figure out how to keep it. So they really partner with individuals that help them um, really leverage their situation to build more wealth while also decreasing their taxable liability at the same time. And that is really the definition of wealth management. The, the real, in my opinion, definition of wealth management is, you know, how do we minimize our expenses to the point where our wealth can only do anything but grow? And if your portfolio and your strategy is not set up for that, then you're not really managing your wealth. You're really just managing your everyday finances is what I would say. How does the 1% think about debt? They love it. <laughs> they love debt. Can anyone guess why that is? You don't pay taxes on debt. Do 1%. If you're at the $504,000 income level, that means you are in the highest marginal tax bracket. And that is 37% at the IRS level. Not to mention what you have to pay at the state. And some of you live in cities that have taxes too, right? So you can very easily find yourselves in 45, 46% marginal tax brackets. The wealthy can borrow that for three, four, and five percent. They instantly have an immediate return on their investment by borrowing the money instead of pulling it out and making it taxable. They instantly have a 35, maybe even a 40% rate of return. And they didn't invest that money. It's just that they kept it protected. Debt, they love it. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about consumer debt. I'm not speaking of the Macy's and the Dillard's credit cards. <laughs> Ross, I don't even know if they got a credit card. Ross credit card. <laughs> Marshall, CJ Maxx. <laughs> We're not speaking of that kind of debt. We're speaking of debt that builds assets, not debt that creates liabilities. So can you give an example of, a, of debt that creates an asset? Sure. Real estate. And believe it or not, I'm not even speaking of your primary residence. Because believe it or not, that's a liability. It's not creating income for you. But I realize you have to have a place to stay, right? So, you know, it's really a non-negotiable. But it's still, at the end of the day, a liability until it's paid off. I mean, even then, once it's paid off, I still, in some instances, don't consider it an asset because if you wanted to use the, the equity in the home, it's a loan, right? Creates another liability. So, however, you invest in real estate, that's an asset that you know creates longer-term wealth. You leveraging your business and taking out business loans, um, business loans that do not impact your personal credit report and credit scores, that's leverage you know when we when we were literally just sitting here talking about acquiring businesses it believe it or not some of these businesses that you can acquire to build your wealth i mean you can get them for 50 dollars, and through sba loans you only have to put down like 10 percent how many of you have ten thousand dollars that you can go and buy a cash flowing business with a cash flowing business and guess what? They're using debt. You know, we have clients that come to us with $1 million plus dollar tax bills. How do we reduce it? We reduce it through debt. We put them to work. You got to get out here and start accumulating some assets that's going to help us reduce this tax bill. And what disappoints me the most is when we do have individuals that come to us with you know, five, six, $700,000 tax bills, whatever the case may be. And they have no discretionary income because they spend it all and there's not a single thing we can do for them. And so let's clarify, when you say spend it all, you mean spending down? Spend it down on cars and jewelry and fancy trips, things that do not accumulate assets. 
things that do not grow your wealth. There's nothing we can do for them. We don't even accept them as clients. First off, I'm loving the like background noise. The mmm. <laughs> the like mm. Few folks got their shoulders back. Like they started to like slide back a little bit. Shoulders got a little low, right? Uh, which means you're growing. It means you're growing. So here's what I think is interesting to consider is you just told us the 1% was 500 $4,000. And $4,000 4, is the 1%. In a moment, I want us to kind of talk about your money team, but then it makes me, I think it's interesting to consider that there are people who are in finance positions that may not be the 1%. So they may not be able to appropriately advise the 1%. There are definitely professionals who uh, work with individuals who are in the 1% but can't properly advise them. That is correct. So for example, your a financial advisor may not be in the 1% and therefore may not be the best financial advisor for someone who is. And let me add a caveat to that. You know, it's not to say that they're not trained professionally and they may, they may also be growing a business too, you know, whatever the case may be. However, that should not be the only person on your team you're receiving advice from. So let's define who should be on your money team. Let's start from if you have a million dollars in net worth, who should be on your money team? Um, at a minimum, you're looking at five or six people. So let's start with, you know, some basics, um, particularly if you are a business owner. Um, so that is going to be at a minimum, a qualified bookkeeper. <laughs> Qualified bookkeeper, yes. Qualified, to be clear. She didn't say bookkeeper, she said qualified bookkeeper. Qualified, and yes. what do you mean by qualified? Just so that we got common language. <sighs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> it basically means an individual who can properly keep books and records and I would say probably has majority of their clients um, in the um, income range that you are as a business. You know, so like, for example, if you have a million dollar business that's doing a million dollars a year in revenue, but your bookkeeper, majority of their clients are only doing their clients, majority of them only do a few hundred thousand, maybe two or three hundred thousand dollars may not necessarily be the right bookkeeper because guess what? How you keep your books and how you categorize things absolutely matters in terms of how, you, how much you pay in taxes and how much a bank is willing to lend you. Because in many cases, we expense way too much. We're looking for ways to write off all of this stuff, but there are ways to still bring down your taxable income without writing off all of your income. So when you think about people who are like, hey, we don't pay any taxes, but they have no problems getting loans from the bank, that is because they wrote off things that are added back to their taxable income when it comes to lending. So from the IRS perspective, they didn't have any taxable income, but from a lender's perspective, they had a million dollars in taxable income. And you need a qualified bookkeeper who knows how to distinguish between those assets and those expenses to properly categorize things and to have things on the balance sheet and not the P&L. But I won't, I, won't, I won't start preaching. Just know you need a qualified <laughs> bookkeeper. First and foremost. First and foremost. Second person that you'll need is a... Um, is a financial advisor, you know, someone who's helping you make, you know, day-to-day -day financial decisions as it relates to your money. Um, the third person that you're going to need to have at least is a relationship with a banker. You absolutely need a relationship with a banker. And honestly, if you only bank with like the really large banks, like your Chases and Wells Fargo's and PNC's of the world, I highly recommend that you start building a relationship with a more local regional bank because you're nine times more likely to 
acquire your first loan through them than a Chase, PNC, or Wells Fargo, Bank of America. Um, so banker is going to be number three. Um, depending on how much and the type of assets that you have, you may need an insurance broker. So an insurance broker is a person who is not captive. And what captive means is that they can only sell insurance through one company. So think of a state farm agent or think of a all state agent, right? Um, they can only sell insurance through one company, but if they are a broker, they have access to 50 <laughs> different insurance companies and they can always be shopping for the best rate. So depending on the type of assets that you have, um, for example, if you're looking at your overall financial statement and you're seeing that, wow, we spend a lot of money on the insurance per year, we spend $100,000 on the insurance, then you absolutely need a broker. Um, and then you at that level, we'll need to consider a tax advisor, also um, known as a tax strategist. Um, that person could be a CPA, they could not be a CPA, it could be an EA, um, could be a wealth, uh, a wealth manager that has a heavy set of knowledge in tax. And then ultimately, what I like to call the quarterback of the money team, someone that's gonna help see the bigger vision, help paint the bigger picture, and help keep the client on track, right? So that means at least quarterly, at a minimum, you know, you're looking at the higher level strategy of what is happening, not only in the business, because what impacts your business impacts you personally, but also what, what you're doing personally and making sure that everything is still moving according to plan. And if not, how do we reset? What do we step back? What do we uh, move? What do we change to get us back on track? So you mentioned earlier that there are some investments that the 1% has access to that you actually can't talk about in this room. And I know that the technical term for that would be an accredited investor. And so can you explain to folks what an accredited investor is? Because I know we've all heard the word investor, but there is a specific type of investor, of an accredited investor that has access to these unspeakable opportunities. And if you ain't qualified, can you define what is an accredited investor and therefore, like how are the opportunities different? Because I think when most people think like investing, they think Robinhood app or maybe crypto, but you're talking something different. So can you explain for us? Absolutely. Allow me to ask a question. How many of you have heard of crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding? Okay, so lots of hands went up there. Prior to the Jobs Act, which was a piece of legislation that was created under the Obama administration in 2012, crowdfunding was not a thing. And in order for you, well, actually it was a thing, it just wasn't available to you. <laughs> Because you had to be an accredited investor to be able to have access to those opportunities. However, the Obama administration realized that in order for us to get more money, more funding into um, underutilized, marginalized communities, they had to loosen those restrictions a little bit. And therefore, that's when the crowdfunding became more popularized and more accessible to everyday Americans. But prior to that, you had to be an accredited investor to participate in those type of opportunities. So what is an accredited investor? Think about one, two, and three when you think of an accredited investor. An accredited investor is someone who has one, one million dollars in net worth, not including your primary residence goes back to what I was saying earlier about the primary residence, right? $1 million in net worth, not including your primary residence. Two, $200,000 in annual income if you are single. You must have made that over two years with the expectation that you'll make it in a third year. Three, $300,000 in annual income if you are married you must have made that over the past two years with the expectation you'll make it in the third year. One, two, three. That is the definition of an accredited investor.
And is it an and or or? Like you have to hit or. all of them or any of them? Or $1 million in net worth, not including your primary residence, or the incomes of two hundred or 300000 depending on your marital status. If you do not meet that definition, you will never hear about those opportunities because it is flat out illegal for us to share them. So you will never be in a room like this and hear those opportunities. This is why exposure is so important because there are people who have been on this stage during these three days who qualify to be accredited investors. Raise your hand if today's the first day you've heard about an accredited investor, this new information, right? So this is why it's important we're having the conversation now because I didn't know what an accredited investor was and when I learned I was like, oh, I could be one. <laughs> like I meet the criteria, mm -hmm. right? And what's the average rate of return on the opportunities that can be talked about, but what's the average rate of return on those types of opportunities in comparison to like Robinhood or like, you know, other things that people have access to like the stock market? Believe it or not, the average rate of return can sometimes be a little bit less. However, the risk is what the federal government is, um, what they want you to, um, what they're trying to protect you from, basically. The federal government's position on certain investments is that, you know, there's, there's no regulatory oversight. You know, there, there isn't anything that says that, hey, you have to give the investors a certain amount of money and, you know, dividends and all these, all these types of things. They are truly private equity venture type deals. Um, however, the longer term rate of return, if you can stick it out that long, is typically greater. So when people go into those types of investments, they're in it for the long run. Like they're in it for, you know, five years, seven years. And some of those things, you know, annually may only have a 10, 15% rate of return. Sometimes they don't have any payoff until the very end, but that very end could be, you know, 100% rate of return, right? However, these are very illiquid investments. So your money in your 401k and the money in your individual brokerage accounts with the Robinhoods and E-Trades and Vanguards, that money is easily accessible if you needed to turn it into cash to do something with. Okay, but you cannot do that over in the accredited investor world and that's why those rules are there. They're there to make sure that everyday people who just I hate to say it, but they're not as financially astute to make those type of decisions alone. It keeps them from, being, from putting half a million dollars into an investment where if they needed it a year later, they can't get it. You know, so you want to make sure that you're well capitalized, even if you meet that definition. So we have clients who meet that definition and we still don't necessarily place them in those type of um, opportunities just yet because we need them building something else. We need that money redirected somewhere else first. We need to accumulate a certain amount of assets before we start diving over into those opportunities. However, we also want them qualified where if they needed to go and raise that money for their own business, we needed to start seeking venture equity, um, private equity, that they're also well positioned to do that as well. So to make this kind of real with an example, um, I feel like it was maybe beginning of this year, maybe late last year, Pinky Cole had a big raising of funds. I can't remember, it was a number of millions of dollars. Would it, could it be an accurate assumption that her funders were accredited investors? Absolutely. In fact, there is a level above being an accredited investor <laughs> And they were probably that. <laughs> so, so this is the hidden curriculum. But I think what's wild is because if you read anything about when companies go public and then people make their money back, 
Like that's an example of, of what we're talking about of these uncredited investor opportunities of I put in a few hundred thousand dollars in Uber when it's a private company and then when it goes public and it's now a valued, and I don't know what the actual number is, but it's now valued at $2 billion. And when I had originally invested in it, it was valued at $2 million. Whatever that multiple is, multiple that times my investment, that's what I just made back. So I think it was also Kobe where he invested in Under Armour and there was a huge article around when they got bought out and merged and his family made that money back, that's the norm for an accredited investor. So they're not thinking about, let me go buy five stocks of Apple on the Robinhood app. I mean, no shade to Robinhood, but that's not what they're thinking about. One final question before we turn it over to the audience. There's lots of different like tax strategies, as you mentioned, is one of the focuses of the 1% of where they wanna reduce their tax liability and there's lots of different ways to do that. There's one really interesting kind of tax code that I don't think most people know about. Raise your hand if you've heard about the Augusta rule. All right, if you can explain to folks, what is the Augusta rule? Who is aware of Augusta, Georgia? Okay, lots of hands went up. What is a very popular tournament that happens in Augusta, Georgia annually? The Masters. You got all those golfers wearing those really nice green jackets, the Masters. Well, Augusta, Georgia is a very small town, right? Yeah, very small. Um, but that tournament draws thousands of people. And they do not have enough lodging for all of those people. There's just not enough hotels. So the residents of Augusta, Georgia, they use that two weeks out of the year. They literally pack up their home and they go on vacation. And they rent out their home during that two-week period, okay? So in that two-week period, they're probably charging $1,000 a night. They're making an easy, you know, $14,000, $15,000. And they lobbied Congress because they felt as though they should not be taxed on that money. And Congress agreed. However, Congress could not just say this rule only applies to individuals who live in Augusta, Georgia. It can apply to anyone who is renting out their home for business purposes up to 14 days per year. If you are a business owner and you are having quarterly planning meetings, monthly meetings, which you really should be doing. I mean, it's a different conversation for a different day, but you absolutely need to be meeting with yourself and you need to be documenting um, different decisions that you're making in your business. But let's just say you're gonna rent out, your business is going to rent out your home once a month to yourself. That becomes a deductible expense to the business and tax-free income to you. And you can do that 14 times a year, up to 14 times per year. And what we tell our clients, because we, we, we make our clients have meetings, <laughs> um, you basically call three hotels, you get a quote for the smallest meeting room possible, okay? So something that may seat five people or seven people. Um, you get three of those quotes, you take the average of those three, that's your reimbursement rate for that day, okay? Now I do want to say this because it is important. If you are filing taxes as a S-Corp, if you are filing taxes as a partnership or a C-Corp, you do need to speak to your financial professional. You may or may not have to follow the rules of what's known as an accountable plan meaning you have to give yourself permission in a certain way to reimburse yourself for um, certain expenses that you're paying for out of pocket. So it is important that, you know, before you implement that strategy or any other strategy that you are 
speaking to whoever is handling your tax situation just to make sure that you stay in compliance. But as long as you're in compliance, it doesn't matter what you're renting your home out for up to 14 days per year. Um, that money can be deductible to the business and tax-free to you. <laughs> and that is one of like hundreds of hundreds of different ways that the 1% is moving. The tax code is a set of incentives. The government doesn't want to be in the business of you know, creating the jobs. They don't want to be in the business of building houses. They don't want to be in the business of finding alternative energy sources. And therefore, they want private dollars to do those things. But the only way you're going to move private dollars is if you incentivize folks. People ain't doing it for, out of the kindness of their hearts. So you have to give them something um, in exchange for them putting their money at risk to create these opportunities. And that's what the tax code is there for. It is there to incentivize people to invest a certain way. So if you notice when new presidents come into office, there's always a big tax bill. There's new legislation because of their initiatives that they want to see happen under their administration. They know they have to get the resources. They got to get Congress behind it and give them the resources to incentivize people to invest in those things. So the tax code itself is like over 7,000 pages. 500 of those pages is for W-2 employees. I said the number one more time. Just the 500, give or take, you know. Out of 7,000. Out of 7,000. So less than 10% of the pages in the tax code is designed for W-2 people, i.e. consumers. You consume. You do not produce. And if you're not producing, the incentives are not there. And that's why it is so difficult for W-2 people to reduce their taxable liability. When you hear people say, oh, Warren Buffett pays less taxes than his secretary, that is a true statement. He's a producer, she is not, or he is not. So the tax code, the remaining 6,500 plus pages is designed for producers. Who are producers? Small business owners, entrepreneurs, investors. Small business owners, entrepreneurs, investors. Once you make your way over to the investing side, you can literally have millions of dollars in tax-free income. You gotta work your way over there. And that's the reason why business ownership is so important. Because as you work your way from small business owner to entrepreneur, entrepreneur to professional investor, you not only have the best of all the worlds, you're probably paying very minimum in personal income taxes. You're paying some payroll taxes because at that point you got people working for you. But in personal income taxes, you're paying very little. But your wealth is steadily increasing. So as a community, we have to get more serious about building bigger businesses. We have to, it is a must. When you, when you hear people saying they want to um, work on reducing the amount of wealth in black communities, how we're gonna be at zero by 2053, that will be a real thing if we don't get serious right now about building bigger businesses. That is a real thing. I was literally laying in bed the night before last watching something on, on the TV here, and they were saying how, you know, um, and I hope this does not offend anyone, but I want to draw a point, but they were talking about how the Hispanic community wealth has tripled over the past three years, while ours continues to decrease. They are building bigger businesses. They are pooling their money. And the one thing that everybody in this room has going for them, that I, I want you to leave this room, and I know we, we're running out of time, I want you to leave this room and figure out a plan on how to accomplish this. And, the, and those who are um, in Dr. EJT's mastermind, 
I absolutely want this to be a thing that you work on. I want you to work on how do you come together as a JV and go after bigger contracts together. I want you to be pursuing the one million, the two million, the three million dollar contracts that they're giving to people that do not look like you that are primarily serving black and brown communities. Because the contracts are bundled. And if they will not unbundle that contract for us, we have to bundle our services together and go after the contract. We have to build bigger businesses. It is a must, it is imperative. This is how we keep our community growing and thriving. It takes business ownership. So yes, that tax code is meant for producers. They want you to produce. Small businesses, you get you know, certain tax incentives for being a small business owner. You get even more when you become an entrepreneur. You get even more when you become a professional investor. We need more professional investors. I'll turn it back over. Now here. this is so good because I mean, I'm, girl, I'm like, ooh, I'm getting convicted and continuing to get convicted. Because yesterday, I stood on this stage and said that oppression will make you fear the very thing that will set you free. And there are people in this room who are afraid to hire. Oh, I wish we had time. Ooh. So I'm, we're gonna go, I, so we're gonna go over. <laughs> We're gonna go over, so I'm gonna make time, but I just wanna illustrate the point here of how your fear of hiring is a form of self-sabotage. Because given what Amelia just said, you being afraid to hire and being specific, you being afraid to hire an employee is going to keep you positioned as a consumer. It's not gonna allow you to be a producer. It doesn't put you in a position to bundle. It doesn't put you in a position to access bigger contracts, right? So these are the things and why it's so important to me that I expose you all to these types of conversations because when I hear you're afraid to hire, I not only hear like you're overworking, I hear you're not gonna build wealth. That's what I hear. And, I'm like, and I know that's what you want, and that's why it's my like, deepest desire for you to move you past that fear as quickly as possible, because I'm like, the sooner you can build your team, the sooner we can start to have some of these conversations to start positioning you, to start talking about acquisitions and mergers, to start talking about more sophisticated real estate strategies, to start talking about more things like the Augusta rule, but you too busy writing proposals and being late sending invoices, because you won't hire. So, it's, I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation right now and hopefully your brain is stretching because your greatest fears, it's what's gonna set you free. It's what's gonna give you access to wealth. This is chess, what we're talking about. This is, this is chess. We're not skipping on the board. We taking queens.